Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to be talking about possibly the most important case in the entire corpus of American constitutional law, that would be McCulloch versus Maryland. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockie and Liberal. And I do want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. Now, if you are new to the program, I especially want to welcome you. Uh, This is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. And real quick, because I am, in fact, a no-good money-grubbing capitalist, I just do want to remind you all that if you appreciate what I do and want to support the channel, there are several avenues. The best way is Patreon, uh, because if you sign up as a patron over at my brand new Patreon page, you get all kinds of extra goodies. Uh, The latest one I got is a section that I'm calling Law School Show Notes. I know a lot of people who watch my show Uh, are, in fact, law students, uh, and they reach out and tell me this show has been helpful to them, and I'm very grateful for those. I really appreciate hearing that. Um, So anyways, I have a section on the Patreon page where uh, I will have information relating to the latest episodes uh, that is going to be stuff that I think will especially be useful for someone studying these topics in law school. So whether you're uh, pre-law or maybe you're an L1 uh, or maybe you've got your JD and you just haven't really uh, taken the bar or begun practice yet. Um, any Anything like that. Uh, this page will just be chock full of all kinds of cool information that will be especially helpful to you. Uh, that information is available to everyone. And there's also a lot of other goodies over on Patreon as well, uh, besides that one little section. And for the low, low price of $2 a month, you can get access to it all, while at the same time helping me to develop the channel, to reach more people, and to be able to engage with you all in an even richer discussion about law and philosophy. If you can contribute, I would be very, very grateful for that. And if you aren't in a place to be able to do that right now, that's totally all right. Uh, I still do really appreciate you coming by and spending some of your time here with me today all the same whether you are a brand new viewer or a longtime subscriber. All right, with that, let's just uh, hop on into the topic for the day. We are going to be talking about McCulloch versus Maryland. This is an 1819 Supreme Court case. This is one of the most foundational cases uh, in the corpus of constitutional law. And this is actually going to be part one in what will be a three-part series about McCulloch versus Maryland. It's, it's that important that it really uh, deserves three episodes. Uh, so today uh, we will be doing, I just basically put together a very basic case brief uh, that will give you guys all the straight facts on the case, uh, which will be an introduction to McCulloch's history, the proceedings, and the court's opinion. And episode two will be uh, 
me refuting a very common complaint that you hear from conservatives about this case, where they depict McCulloch as justifying some vast uh, federal powers expansion under a broad interpretation of the Constitution. They portray John Marshall as a big government judge. Now, this portrayal is wrong. I am no fan of John Marshall by any means, but even I uh, can see that this is a completely uh, unfair view of his reading. So, um, yeah. Now, McCulloch, uh, on the other side, from the people who see those criticisms, uh, many people on the other side of this will say that this makes McCulloch the most misunderstood case in the whole of American constitutional law. And that's not just according to a couple nobodies like me. Uh, that is people like Rob Nadelson, Josh Blackman, Steve Schwartz. I mean, some of the premier constitutional scholars in the country today will call this the most misunderstood case. Now, while I don't wholly agree with that claim, I agree it's right up there. And if we were going to be talking about uh, most misunderstood cases, McCulloch versus Maryland would easily make my top five. And then finally, episode three, we are going to be talking about how the picture of implied powers presented here coming from John Marshall in the court's opinion is the antecedent to any number of constitutional doctrines, uh, such as the Intergovernmental Tax Immunity Doctrine, uh, which is a crucial and largely unknown piece of history of how we came to have the 16th Amendment that created the income tax, or as I call it, constitutional theft. Now, I realize that description of episode 3 may sound really boring, intergovernmental tax, immunity, Jack, what the fuck is that? Uh, but uh, no, I assure you, it's actually a really, really interesting topic. I, I always do my best to try and present these in a fun and interesting way, but it, it really is going to be a, a fascinating show. I'm sure you will love it every bit as I do, every bit as much as I do, and you will come away uh, with a real appreciation for this case. So with that, let's uh, get into our brief of McCulloch. So we're going to start talking about uh, enumerated constitutional powers and the First Bank of the United States. Now, following the ratification of the Constitution, our young republic faced serious financial problems. Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of the Treasury, proposed a solution to address these problems. The federal government should charter a national bank. Now, this would be an institution that would establish credit, accept deposits, and lend money to the new national government. Now, Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution states, All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. In other words, if a legislative power is not enumerated somewhere in the Constitution, the Congress does not have that power. Now, most of Congress's 
enumerated powers can be found in Article 1, Section 8, which lists 17 separate clauses. Now, the power to incorporate a bank cannot be found in any of the first 16 clauses of Article 1, Section 8. So, Hamilton's proposal does not require the collection of direct taxes, so that power is out, nor does the bill borrow money, nor does it regulate commerce. All those powers are likewise out. That leaves us with only Clause 17, the Necessary and Proper Clause, which could possibly empower Congress to incorporate the bank. Now, members of Congress and officers in the executive branch debated uh, this important constitutional question. Is it necessary and proper for Congress to charter a bank in order to execute any of its enumerated powers, such as collecting taxes, borrowing money, or regulating commerce? Now, unlike uh, the national bank that we all know today, the Federal Reserve, uh, with the first bank of the United States, uh, its existence would include private investors which held stock in the first national bank. So, was it proper to grant monopolies to such favored individuals? Opponents of the bank feared creating a privileged moneyed aristocracy of the type that existed in Europe. Now, these populist concerns created a, a really, really intense political debate. And soon, the controversy about the bank's constitutionality focused on Congress's power to grant such a monopoly. Now, Representative James Madison delivered an important speech to Congress. He argued that the power to incorporate a bank was not incidental to any of the enumerated powers. Therefore, the power to charter the bank was a great and important power that needed to be enumerated specifically within the text of Article 1. Now, in addition... Madison contended that it was not necessary to incorporate a bank in order to collect taxes, borrow money, or regulate commerce. He concluded that Congress thus lacked the power to incorporate the bank. Now, after Congress's approval of the bank, President Washington asked members of his cabinet for their opinion on its constitutionality. Thomas Jefferson, the Secretary of State, took an even more stringent view of the, of the term necessary than did Madison. Jefferson contended that when the, con when the Constitution restrained Congress to the necessary means of executing its powers, 
This was limited to those whose means without which the grant of power would be nugatory. He went on to say that because its goals can be accomplished in other ways, it was not necessary to charter a bank. Now, Alexander Hamilton, who first proposed the idea of the National Bank strongly, rejected Jefferson's strict reading of the word necessary. Instead, uh, he defined necessary as needful, requisite, incidental, useful, or conducive. In other words, if it is useful for Congress to charter a bank in order to collect taxes or borrow, borrow money, then Congress has the power to do so. But while Hamilton rejected any tests of constitutionality that rested on the degree to which the measure is necessary or the more or less necessity or utility of a measure, he did not go so far as to say that Congress had the discretion to adopt any means that in his sole judgments would be convenient uh, would be convenient. Instead, Hamilton offered the following test. The relation between the measure and the end, between the nature of the means employed towards the execution of a power and the object of that power, must be the criterion of constitutionality. Now, in today's modern constitutional law parlance, this is what you would call means and scrutiny. Now, President Washington uh, would either agree with Hamilton's opinion on the constitutionality, or he would agree with Jefferson's, that because the decision was a close one, he should defer to Congress. Because, in 1791, he did end up signing the bill into law, chartering the First Bank of the United States, and it would remain in business for two decades. All right, next we are going to talk about the Second Bank of the United States. Now, this bill was signed into law by President James Madison, uh, which has given rise to the question of whether he had changed his mind about the meaning of necessary and proper from what he had articulated originally as a congressman back in 1791. In private correspondence, Madison defended the consistency of the approach by contending that it was proper for him to defer to the judgment of several congresses on the question of whether the bank was truly necessary to execute his powers, especially given what he said was the bank's almost necessity. All the same, the bank quickly became unpopular. In 1818, the Maryland General Assembly imposed a tax on a branch of the Bank of the United States in Baltimore. The bank's cashier, James William McCulloch, refused to pay the tax. Maryland sued McCulloch to recover the money. The Maryland Supreme Court of Appeals ruled for the state. McCulloch then appealed his case up to the Supreme Court, arguing that a state cannot tax a federal institution. 
However, before the court could decide if the state tax was constitutional, they had to first decide if Congress indeed did have the power to charter the federal bank in the first place. And it was at this point that the debate of two decades earlier between Jefferson and Hamilton, Jefferson and Madison on one side, excuse me, and Alexander Hamilton on the other side, would now be resolved by the Supreme Court in the case of McCulloch versus Maryland. Chief Justice John Marshall, writing for the court, rejected Maryland's very narrow reading of necessary. Now, though Marshall did not cite Hamilton, the Chief Justice copied several portions of the Treasury Secretary's opinion of uh, the constitutionality of the bank almost verbatim. If you remember, Hamilton had defined necessary as needful, requisite, incidental, useful, or conducive. Marshall used these four words, but he added a fifth, convenient. At several junctures in his opinion, a term that Hamilton did not use as a synonym for necessary. That is to say, Marshall could be read as saying that Congress could do whatever is convenient in order to execute its other enumerated powers. And indeed, Marshall described the creation of the bank as a convenient, useful, and essential instrument in the prosecution of fiscal operations and an appropriate mode of executing the powers of government. He rejected the notion that it must be an absolute physical necessity. Marshall put forward the following test, which to this day is relied on by the Supreme Court to determine the scope of Congress's implied powers. Marshall said, Let the end be legitimate. Let it be within the scope of the Constitution and all means which are appropriate, which are plainly adapted to that end, which are not prohibited, but consist with the letter and the spirit of the Constitution, are constitutional. Now, arguably, the criterion of means, which are plainly adapted to the ends, includes the sorts of means and scrutiny that had been advocated by Hamilton, but this is not entirely clear. However, the bottom line is that the court in McCulloch held that the Necessary and Proper Clause gave Congress a sufficient power to incorporate a bank. As a result, Maryland cannot tax the federal bank because the power to tax involves the power to destroy. Marshall went on to reject the objection that the Constitution did not specify powers to create a bank on the grounds that such specificity would partake of the prolixity of the legal code. Instead, Marshall declared, we must never forget that it is a Constitution we are expounding. He went on to add that our Constitution 
is intended to endure for ages to come and consequently to be adapted to the various crises of human affairs. In other words, to avoid soon growing outdated, the Constitution speaks in more general terms. Marshall's opinion in McCulloch became so controversial that he ended up having to defend it in the editorial pages of two Virginia newspapers in a series of pseudonymous columns to rebut the charges that the court had read the Necessary and Proper Clause as authorizing, quote, unlimited power of Congress to adopt any means whatsoever. Marshall highlighted a portion of his opinion that really does not often receive very much attention at all. He said the court would have to invalidate a law should Congress, under the pretext of executing its powers, pass laws for the accomplishment of objects not entrusted to the government. Now, 13 years later, in 1832, President Andrew Jackson vetoed renewal of the National Bank because, unlike Marshall, Jackson found that the bank was not necessary to the execution of Congress's enumerated powers, and it was therefore unconstitutional. Well, that is going to do it for me here today on Categorical Imperatives. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, hit the thumbs up button. Uh, if you disliked it, hit the thumbs down button. Uh, if you want to leave me a comment, I always really do love to get feedback from you guys. I love getting to hear your thoughts uh, on uh, either the video or uh, the topic specifically or uh, suggestions for other videos I can do. I love all of that stuff. Um, and of course, if you want to support the show, links down in the description to go to Patreon, all that stuff. Uh, and if you are not able to do that, uh, I would just ask everyone out there to take a moment and think of one person you know who you think would also uh, benefit from this information or would find it interesting or useful, and just take a moment and just share this episode with that person. If you would be willing to do that for me to help grow the channel, I would be very, very grateful. I will be back in a couple days with episode 2 about the myth of McCulloch versus Maryland. Until then, uh, it's been me, Lockheed and Liberal, on Categorical Imperatives, talking about McCulloch versus Maryland, and of course, as always, De Lenda S. Carthago. <laughs>